Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad. Mary. Yes, we come now to our first full-on official queen, because Lady Jane Grey, she lasted about nine days. She wasn't really accepted by anyone. She was never crowned. She never sat on a throne. Uh, it was a short, sad blip and she doesn't even make it into the main body of the rhyme so mary uh, is generally considered to be our first proper queen and she's generally known now as bloody mary because she put to death so many protestants in this regard she's slightly the victim of the protestant historians after her death painted her in a very bad light because of her religion and also it has to be said because of her sex. It just wasn't done for a lady to be killing people. And in the end, she was by no stretch of the imagination our bloodiest monarch. She wasn't even the bloodiest Tudor. She just crammed quite a lot of killings into a short length of time. Mary only ended up ruling for five years, partly because she'd suffered from ill health all her life and wasn't very well when she came to the throne also because her reign had been delayed by her half-brother Edward VI being given precedent over her but during those five years she managed to have about 300 religious dissenters burned at the stake 
men and women. And that averages out at about one a week over her reign. I mean, it wasn't done as a regular thing. It tended to happen in clumps and she didn't do it immediately. So she was slightly sort of manoeuvred into this position, which we will come to later. Now, as I say, there's a certain amount of misogyny involved in her popular image. And we've seen this before, right down the ages, that any powerful women who kind of stick their head above the parapet and, and try to wield a certain amount of power, either because they have a weak husband, like Henry VI, where Isabella of France was essentially kind of running things, or they should be on the throne but aren't, like Matilda, who went to war against Stephen. There's this idea that women shouldn't act like men. And if they do act like men, they're dismissed as being bossy and overbearing. It, it is still something that happens today. And we've looked at this many times, how powerful women, women in business or whatever, if they behave like a man, they are accused of essentially being unladylike. And Mary falls prey to the same prejudices. She had a very, very difficult life. She was born in 1516. She died in 1558, and she was only 42 years old. And she was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, which is where the difficulties come in, I suppose. She was born at Greenwich Palace. And actually, the first few years of her life, she was pretty happy. Henry and her mother, Catherine of Aragon, were still married and getting along okay. Uh, they were both very proud of Mary, who was the first of their children to survive. She seemed to have been a lively, bright child, and Henry was forever showing her off to foreign dignitaries. As she could dance, she could speak from an early age, she could play the virginal, which is a sort of early harpsichord type of an instrument. She was this sort of well-loved precocious child. She had very many people looking after her. Henry set aside quite a large sum of money uh, every year for her care. It's interesting this way that the, the, the rich and the aristocrats tended to hand their children into the care of someone else. And Mary's chief governess was this very interesting woman called Mary Plantagenet, the Countess of Salisbury, who was also called Margaret Pole after she married a guy called Sir Richard Pole. And she was the only surviving daughter of Flaky George Plantagenet, the Duke of Clarence, Edward IV's younger brother, who was always plotting against him. And if you remember, Edward eventually got completely fed up with Flaky George and had him executed. And Margaret was one of the very, very few members of the House of Plantagenet to make it safely through the Wars of the Roses. And Henry was perhaps keeping her close by putting her in the royal household because she was from a rival branch of the family to his branch, the Tudors. But she was a powerful woman in her own right. She was one of only two women in 16th century England to be a peeress without having to have a husband in the House of Lords. There have been quite a lot of books written about her, including inevitably by Philippa Gregory, who is always drawn to strong and interesting women. 
And as I say, she married into the Pole family, and one of her sons was a guy called Reginald Pole, who we will come back to later, and we will come back to Margaret later, because her story and her family's story is intricately woven into the life of Mary Tudor. So as I say, Mary was a precocious child. Um, she studied French, Spanish, perhaps Greek as well, music and dance. And as I say, Henry was very, very proud of her and was always showing off about her, uh, including um, boasting to the Venetian ambassador that Mary never cried. And this very well-known Spanish humanist called Juan Luis Vives came over to England at Mary's mother's invitation. So Catherine of Aragon, being Spanish, brought him over and uh, he was commissioned to write a school book, How to Educate Good Young Christian Women. And we saw uh, when we looked at Lady Jane Grey in the last episode that, that young women at the time, certainly in aristocratic circles, were given an equal education to young men. It, they didn't have this idea that there was no point educating women. Their sole purpose was to have children. And I guess, particularly within the court, it was useful for these young women to have a knowledge of the world and the, the way things worked and the way courts worked. Uh, because through marriage, they were always used um, as part of sort of royal diplomacy. So Juan Luis Vives said she should study scripture, she should study the history of the Christian church, a few of the pagan classics, but no medieval romances, because women could be led astray all too easily. And Mary had her own court based at Ludlow Castle in Wales and had many of the kind of duties and the powers that were traditionally being given to a Prince of Wales, but she was never officially called Princess of Wales. But she was very much, to start with, a princess. So at this point, she is the only surviving child of Henry VIII. Obviously, he would have preferred to have a male heir. But as I say, women are still useful assets in the sort of dynastic and diplomatic marriage stakes. And throughout her childhood, Henry kept negotiating various potential marriages for her with these European royals. She was initially betrothed to Francis, the Dauphin of France, the infant son of King Francis I. And this was part of Cardinal Wolsey's doing, part of his politicking. But once he had actually managed to arrange a reasonably strong alliance with France, the marriage became less important and the betrothal was kind of got rid of a couple of years later. And instead, when she was only six, Mary was betrothed to her 22-year-old cousin, Charles V of Spain, who was Holy Roman Emperor at this time, Charles V being part of the Habsburg family, which had married into the Spanish dynasty and the male side had taken over. So we have this huge power block between the Habsburgs in Spain and the Habsburgs in essentially sort of Germany and the Low Countries. But Charles himself broke off this engagement with Henry's consent at which point Henry turned his attention to King James V of Scotland. But the Scottish don't seem to have been very keen on that alliance. 
Henry had already married one of his sisters to a Scottish king, so he was he was always trying to nullify the Scottish threat by marrying members of his family to Scottish royalty. So Mary had a happy first few years, despite being betrothed to various foreigners, although she probably knew nothing about it. But things started to go wrong for her when she reached puberty. Two things happened. One, Henry started trying to annul his marriage to her mother. And the other is that she started getting irregular periods, um, stomach cramps, health problems, and periods of depression. And it's interesting that later in her life, physicians who attended her put her problems down to the fact that she'd had some upsets in her life and was a bit down in the dumps. This may, of course, have been part of her problem, but she did have some serious issues which eventually killed her. And and this is still a problem for women. They're often dismissed by male doctors as being a bit hysterical and not tough enough, imagining all sorts of ailments. Oh, you're being too much of a snowflake. And they often don't investigate properly so that serious health problems are often missed. But Mary was still pretty tough and very stubborn. She refused to acknowledge Anne as the Queen or that her sister Elizabeth was a princess. And this really made her father angry. And it's interesting what Henry couldn't see was she was very much his own daughter And we saw that when we were looking at Edward VI, that he had inherited many of the characteristics of his father. Edward and Mary, like Henry, and indeed like Elizabeth as well, were self-assured, single-minded, stubborn and didn't like to be disagreed with. And if you put two of these people together, like Mary and Henry, it doesn't always go well. For three years, Henry refused to talk to Mary at all. And this stress on Mary was um, one of the reasons that the royal physician claimed that she was always ill. But her father at first did continue to support her, um, paying for fine clothes and to help her gamble at cards, which was one of her favourite pastimes. But as I say, she had fallen out quite badly with Henry. And when her mother, Catherine, became ill... Uh, She was refused permission to see her and wasn't with her when she died. And Catherine's death really did affect her very deeply. And Henry and the whole court were leaning on her to comply because when the marriage was annulled, Mary was declared illegitimate and taken out of the line of succession. And eventually Cromwell leaned on the people close to Mary and said that unless she accepted that her mother's marriage was invalid, she may well end up being led to the scaffold. So she did reluctantly give in. Things didn't go well for her until Henry's new wife, Anne Boleyn, herself was taken to the scaffold. At this point, Elizabeth, Mary's I wouldn't say hated sister, but she obviously wasn't too fond of her. But Elizabeth was also declared illegitimate and also stripped of her rights of succession. But Henry blew hot and cold and eventually reinstated Mary in the line of succession and declared her to be legitimate after all, because Mary was still useful to him as a diplomatic tool. 
because, of course, if she was illegitimate, she had no value in the marriage stakes. And Cromwell tried to negotiate a potential marriage to William I, the Duke of Cleves, this, this small power block in the Netherlands. And this is in a period where Henry has fallen out with the Holy Roman Empire and is looking for um, a powerful ally in the region. Uh, the marriage never happened. And instead, Henry married the Duke's sister, Anne of Cleves, which didn't go at all well and was one of the reasons for Cromwell's eventual downfall. He was arrested for treason in 1540 and one of the trumped up charges against him was that he himself had plotted to marry Mary and take over as this sort of, well, he would have been king. But Henry cut Cromwell's head off. Well, not personally, got one of his minions to do it. Henry kept well away from all these executions. He didn't attend any of them. But this was a period of heavy paranoia in the royal court. Cromwell had stoked the flames of conspiracy until Henry saw plots all around him. And there was supposedly a new one against him to depose him, to murder him, which became known as the Exeter Conspiracy. And it looked like it was one of those things where Cromwell was just trying to get rid of any potential rivals. And Henry was trying to get rid of any potential claimants to the throne. So the Exeter conspiracy was supposedly an attempt to overthrow Henry VIII and rejoin the British church and the British people with the Pope. The idea was that Henry would be replaced by a guy called Henry Courtney, the Marquis of Exeter. Now, Henry Courtney was a first cousin of the king and, like his relative, Margaret Plantagenet, who we looked at earlier, Margaret Pole, the Countess of Salisbury, was a direct descendant of Edward IV. He'd been a lifelong friend of the king and had become quite influential at court. And as rivals, he and Cromwell hated each other. Courtney had Catholic sympathies, a valid claim on the throne and a great deal of support in the west of England. But whether he and the other men accused alongside him really planned to overthrow the king and replace him seems a bit unlikely. Margaret Plantagenet and her family, the Poles, were also caught up in this supposed conspiracy, including her son, who is now Cardinal Reginald Pole, the rank of Cardinal being a senior position in the church that can only be bestowed by the Pope. So Reginald's been given this powerful religious authority from outside England, and he's been a bit of a thorn in Henry's side. Henry can't stand him. So remember, Margaret is one of the last of the Yorkist line of the Plantagenets, uh, and she'd been Mary's favourite governess. But despite being nearly 70 years old, she's arrested and accused of treason. Henry Courtney himself is executed straight away, but Margaret is held in the tower for two years alongside Henry Courtney's son Edward and finally executed in 1541. And poor young Mary... This is something else to add to her list of miseries, that all these people who were so close to her and so important to her when she was young are, are dying or being removed one way or another. And poor old Margaret Plantagenet had an awful execution. The, the proper executioner was away with the army, I think in Scotland, and someone just grabbed a kind of passing youth, 
hadn't said here ever go. And he hacked away at her, shredding her head and shoulders before he managed to remove her head. And this is just an example of this incredibly brutal time. You know, we look at the pictures of the Tudor court and they're all done up in their finery. And, you know, this is supposedly civilization has come to England after the the insanity and the violence of the Wars of the Roses. But there may not be a full on civil war, but the amount of internal infighting at court is just appalling. And the number of these people who end up being executed or burnt is well, it's horrifying in many ways. Reginald Pole himself was pardoned, as was Courtney. And Courtney was locked up in the Tower of London, where he remained this sort of figurehead for the um, anti-Reformation movement, for the Catholic movement. But it's not long after this that Henry VIII dies, his only son, Edward, comes to the throne as Edward VI, as a nine-year-old. Uh, and once again, this puts Mary and her sister Elizabeth into a difficult position. Henry had officially, before he died, through one of these Acts of Parliament, reinstated Mary as an heir. So Mary and Elizabeth were both back in the line of succession and would come to the throne if Edward didn't have any male heirs of his own. I guess at this point, Henry's thinking, things are safe. Edward will be fine. He'll have a boy. Things will run smoothly. Ho, ho, ho. Edward and Mary fell out and argued a great deal about religion. So after Henry's death, things were balanced. It could have gone either way. Are things going to slip back into the old ways of doing things, the way people had done it for hundreds and hundreds of years? and revert to Catholicism and the authority of the Pope? Or is the Reformation, this kind of new way of doing things, is it going to be accepted? Edward is very much for the Reformation. Mary very much is on the side of Catholicism. It's interesting. Edward wants to carry on what his father started. And Mary, you can see that her allegiance is to her mother, Catherine, a devout Catholic, part of this Catholic Spanish dynasty. So Mary is remaining true to her mother. Edward is remaining true to her father. Although, as Mary must have often pointed out in her arguments with Edward, Henry never really gave up on Catholicism. He still celebrated the Mass. He still thought of himself as a Catholic. He had simply wanted to sever ties with the Pope and make himself head of the English Church. He wasn't so keen on all the other reforms, all the other changes that, that essentially people like Cromwell and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer pushed through. But what this meant was when Edward fell ill and realised that he was dying, he quickly signed up a document and then amended it to nominate as his heir this slightly obscure member of the family, his cousin, Lady Jane Grey as a Protestant, and she had been married to the daughter of John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, who is kind of Edward's closest ally and the sort of 
number one man at court who's trying to manoeuvre himself into this this very strong position of having his son Guildford married to the Queen as she becomes. But nobody likes this idea outside of Dudley's family. As Edward is dying, Mary was summoned to London to visit her, but she was warned that this was a plot and that she would be captured, which would help Jane come into the throne. So instead, she went to her stronghold in Norfolk, where she had a lot of estates and she had a lot of support. It was in East Anglia that Ket's Rebellion had started. This was this great uprising against Edward VI. People were furious about the landlords enclosing all the land. They were furious about the changes to religious practices and how they were allowed to worship. And it was John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, who had so viciously put down this rebellion and executed Ket. So she had a lot of anti-Protestant support there. And she set off towards London. Northumberland was convinced to go and try and stop her. While he's out of London, the rest of the court stage a coup and declare their support for Mary. Northumberland's caught in the middle. He is eventually arrested and he is executed. And Mary rides triumphantly into London in 1553, accompanied by Elizabeth and a procession of over 800 nobles and gentlemen. But she's not only supported by the top brass. This was the only popular uprising to succeed in the nearly 120 years of Tudor rule. This uprising to get rid of Jane and to put Mary on the throne. And the slogan of the common people marching behind her was Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. And everyone must have thought, OK, this is it. We're going back to the old ways. Mary's going to be on the throne. Everything will be settled. Because a lot of the resistance towards Jane being on the throne and towards Mary and Elizabeth being part of the line of succession was the fact that they were women. It was argued by very many people, you can't have a woman on the throne. She won't be strong enough. She will marry some man who will then become king and we'll be right back in some terrible civil war again as all the other men think they should be king. But it seems to be that everybody put those differences aside for Mary because she represented how they wanted England to be. It's interesting, we saw in Henry's reign the birth of this idea that England wasn't just a country. It wasn't just a country of England. It was an empire. And this was cemented at Edward VI's coronation, where he was crowned King of England and the English Empire. And that goes beyond little England. It goes into Wales. It goes into Ireland. It is tentatively trying to go into Scotland. And it's very much going into the new world. It's like, well, this is England's empire expanding into this new continent. Well, new to the English. And people were hoping that Mary would actually bring back the idea of Englishness, that England is important and all this other stuff doesn't matter. The, the common people 
All they cared about was England, whereas the aristocracy, the ruling powers, they didn't care what England was called. They didn't care if it was called England or Britain or the empire. They had wider ambitions. And a lot of this was to do with the money that they could make. And a lot of the reason that the people were pissed off is because they were pretty hard done by at this point. Um, Europe had entered this sort of mini ice age, the little ice age. Um, things had got a lot colder. Mary's reign was dogged by terrible weather conditions there was a lot of rain it was cold there was flooding there was crop failure there was famine it was pretty bad times to be an English peasant and they didn't really give a toss about all the politicking that is going on in parliament in the royal court wars with France rivalries with the Pope and the Spanish the Habsburgs they didn't want anything to do with this but inevitably they are caught up in it. So Mary comes to the throne at the age of 37, at which point it is important to her to find a husband. And as we've just seen, this is a very tricky territory. Now, one of the first things Mary does when she comes to the throne is to release various Catholic prisoners from the Tower of London, people who had been opposed to Henry's reforms, including Edward Courtney, who, if you remember, was the son of Henry Courtney, who was accused of the so-called Essex conspiracy against Henry. So Edward's something of a figurehead for Catholic resistance and a sort of figurehead for the old days before Henry mucked everything up. And everybody around Mary is saying that this is the guy she should marry. This is the perfect candidate. He's a proper Englishman. He's part of the English royal family. He's a Catholic. He's well-liked. And marrying him would also nullify this lingering Plantagenet threat. Let's not go for a foreigner. That's going to cause problems. They'll accept you if you marry an Englishman. They'll trust you if you look abroad. It's going to cause problems, particularly if you marry a Habsburg. We've seen what they do. England will become just a little outpost of the Habsburg's mighty empire. And they really did have an empire. Henry liked to think he did. But compared to the territories that the Habsburgs control and the wealth that they generated, England was nothing. And the general population, the ordinary people who are still pretty much thinking of themselves as Catholics, don't want Mary to marry a foreigner and the Protestants don't want her to marry a foreigner because they're pretty much all Catholics. But Mary, as we know, is pretty stubborn, is strong-willed, she has her own ideas and likes to stick to them and she sets her sights on Prince Philip of Spain. He's a very, very devout Catholic. She sees Spain as being part of who she is, part of her soul. Um, Philip is announcing himself as the defender of Catholic Europe against both the Ottoman Empire, which is encroaching from the, from the east, coming up from Turkey, and also as the defender of the Catholic faith against the Protestant Reformation. And this is just what Mary wants to be part of. She sees herself as the person who's going to restore England to what it was. And with Philip's help, she can do that. Everybody across the board says, no, Mary, please don't do that. Please don't. 
For a start, Philip is 10 years younger than her. He's also a Habsburg, so he suffers from the sort of uh, Habsburg inbreeding. He has this genetic defect of the elongated chin that makes it hard to eat and even sometimes quite hard to talk properly. And, you know, he's also quite closely related to Mary. Mary being the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who was one of the daughters of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. So Mary's aunt, Catherine of Aragon's sister, Mad Queen Juana, is Philip's grandmother. Now, I'm not sure exactly how these things work. Does that make Philip and Mary first cousins, second cousins? Whatever. But essentially, she's marrying back into her own mother's family. But that's how the Habsburgs liked it. Now, Philip is probably agreeing to this marriage because he thinks, OK, once I'm married to Mary, I will be able to become King of England. This means the Habsburg Empire will be even more enormous. They've got this huge part of Northern Europe, Spain, Italy, and now they will have England. Mary had never met Philip the great Renaissance painter Titian knocked up a portrait of him um, and sent it over, no doubt extremely flattering. So Mary decided to proceed, but not before drawing up a marriage act, which would have been hammered out with Parliament. This set out that Philip was allowed to call himself King of England and sign that on official documents, including Acts of Parliament. But really, he wasn't allowed to actually be king. Certainly his title of King of England would only last for Mary's lifetime. And it also stipulated that England was not obliged to kind of be an ally of Spain. If Philip's father, Emperor Charles, went to war, the English weren't automatically expected to turn up. And Philip could also not do anything without his wife's agreement and he couldn't appoint any foreigners, particularly Spaniards, to the royal court and to any office in England. But it did mean that if they had any children, that child would be heir to the throne of England, but also to the Spanish Empire. At this point, Philip is only a prince. He's not a king yet because Charles V is still ruling. But in order to make him look more important, Charles gave him a couple of titles. He made him King of Naples and also King of Jerusalem, which meant that when Mary married him, she also became Queen of Naples and Queen of Jerusalem. I mean, the Jerusalem bit is, is really just a title because, as far as I can remember, the Ottomans were in charge. But the marriage went ahead despite being unpopular and actually... An incredibly stupid move on Mary's behalf. She should never have done this and it did completely undermine her throne and cause her support base to start to crumble. The other thing she did that lost her support was to grow increasingly cruel through her reign, or at least her behaviour was seen as cruel. Initially, she was quite kind, forgiving and lenient. She didn't immediately have Lady Jane Grey executed, for instance. Jane was kept in custody, as was her husband, Lord Guildford. She did, as we saw, have Guildford's father, John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, executed because she very much saw him 
as being the mastermind of the whole plan to put Jane on the throne and keep Mary off it. So to start with, Jane Grey and Guildford were safe. But after Mary's unpopular marriage to Philip, there were various uprisings against her. A guy called Thomas Wyatt led some followers up from Kent to try to depose Mary in favour of her half-sister Elizabeth. And this developed into a, a wider conspiracy, which is now called Wyatt's Rebellion. And rather unwisely, Lady Jane Grey's father, Henry Grey, the Duke of Suffolk, joined in. He was hoping this might be his final power play. Get rid of Mary, save the family. But when Wyatt got to London, he was defeated and captured, at which point Mary realised she couldn't risk any of these people staying alive. So Wyatt was executed, as was Jane Grey's father. And finally, Lady Jane Grey and her husband, Guildford Dudley, all executed. Now, interestingly, Edward Courtney was also implicated in the plot, but he was only imprisoned and finally exiled. And what about Elizabeth? Wyatt's rebellion had been about trying to put her on the throne. She claimed she had nothing to do with it. She didn't even know about it till they all started marching on London. She was completely innocent. But she was locked up in the Tower of London for a couple of months uh, before being put under house arrest at Woodstock Palace in Oxford. So Mary had tried to be lenient and had realised she couldn't really. She had to show that she was tough, that she was ruling with an iron hand because otherwise people would be constantly rising against her. And she initially issued a proclamation that nobody would be forced to go back to Catholicism if they had become Protestant. But those close to her said, you've really got to be careful of the powerful Protestant bishops and clergymen. And she had several of them arrested, including Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and various bishops, including Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And then Mary, in her first parliament, reversed a lot of Henry's decision, declared that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon was valid and that Mary herself was therefore legitimate. She abolished the religious laws that Edward had put in place. Church doctrine was restored. And one of the key parts of the changes under Edward had been that priests were allowed to marry. Uh, they didn't have to be celibate. There was nowhere in the Bible that said this had to be a thing and that it led to corruption and, and certain bad behaviour. But Mary reversed that as well, which meant that these new priest marriages were all automatically annulled. Mary also essentially removed herself from being the ultimate head of the church. She uh, restored ties to the Pope. The one thing she couldn't reverse was giving back the confiscated lands that had been taken from the monasteries, the abbeys and, and, and the larger churches, because Henry had taken them and had sold them off cheap to his cronies, to people around him in court, to keep them supporting his reforms that helped him do what he wanted to do. And all these rich and powerful men are saying, yes, it's marvellous, we, we should have Catholicism back. You're absolutely right, Mary, but uh, no, I don't think we should give the lands back. I think we'll hold on to them. And they were too strong for Mary to do anything about. Perhaps if she'd reigned longer and had got into a more secure position, 
it had gone on for more than five years, it might have been different. She might eventually have pulled the whole thing off. But at the time, money trumped doctrine. Many rich Protestants and clergymen managed to flee into exile, going abroad, most of them. Some remained and stuck to their guns, said, no, we're Protestants, we're not going back, we're not recanting. And Mary started to burn them. Because one of the things that she had also brought back in was the idea of heresy, which meant that heretics were burned. It had all got a bit muddled and been slightly dismantled under Henry because they didn't want anyone having showing these Catholic ideas and allegiance to the Pope through the doing things like burning heretics. But she felt fully entitled to burn heretics again, and she started doing it. She started burning these Protestant bishops. And I mentioned before this, how ghastly this idea was of publicly setting fire to people. They'd build a sort of stack of kindling and stand the person on top and, and set fire to it. And if the fire wasn't laid properly... It could take some time, and because burning people had fallen out of favour, uh, people seemed to have slightly lost the art, and a lot of these burnings went very badly. I mean, I don't know how much of these stories that come out of this are later Protestant propaganda, but John Hooper, the Bishop of Gloucester, when he was burnt, it, it really didn't take. I mean, his legs were being burnt, but nothing else, and he was basically standing there crying out for more fire. Uh, shouting out, God's love, good people, let me have more fire. Bishops Latimer and Ridley were burnt together at the stake. And Ridley had been very popular. He'd been Bishop of London. He had helped draft the Book of Common Prayer. He preached these enormously well-attended outdoor sermons. He gave a lot of money to the poor. He looked after the ordinary people. But he was set on fire because he wouldn't recant and um, Bishop Latimer and again this is probably made up but supposedly said to him as they started to burn be of good comfort Master Ridley and play the man which shall this day by God's grace light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out and Latimer went quite quickly but the fire on Ridley's side was burning much more slowly and one of the things that wealthy families did was that they would bribe the executioner to tie a bag of gunpowder around the neck of these people burned so that when the flames leapt up towards the face, the gunpowder would explode and, I guess, blow their head off. But it would certainly bring things to an end much quicker. But uh, the, the kindling was too green on its side and it wasn't igniting. And Ridley was screaming, I cannot burn! until a guard pulled away some of the damp upper layer and the flames leapt up and he exploded. Now, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer had witnessed a lot of this. He saw what was going on and he knew what had happened to Latimer and Ridley and he decided he wasn't brave enough to go through it. And in several religious courts, he said, OK, I'll go back to Catholicism. Protestantism was wrong. But in the end, Mary still decided to have him burnt. He was too much of a risk. He had been such Henry's man and Edward's man. He'd been Archbishop of Canterbury. He was too powerful. And she burnt him anyway, at which point Cranmer said, no, sod the lot of you. 
I am a Protestant and I was completely wrong for ever claiming I wasn't. And apparently shoved his right hand into the flames first, saying, here I burn the hand that signed these false documents. And Cranmer's burning seems to have been a slight turning point. People are saying, this is going too far. This guy actually recanted. This is becoming unacceptable. And these original public burnings had been pretty popular. They'd been held outside St Bartholomew's Hospital, drawing large crowds. But people were getting sick of it. There were so many of them. You know, London must have been filled with the stench of burning human flesh. And so the executions were moved behind doors. But Mary carried on with it. So there was a lot of discontent around the country. And she had a lot of personal problems of her own. She didn't see a lot of Philip. They were only married, I think, for a couple of years. And he spent a lot of time um, in Spain and in Europe, in the rest of the Habsburg Empire. But she did apparently get very attached to him, fall in love with him. And in 1554, she stopped menstruating. She gained weight. She felt sick in the mornings. All classic symptoms, of course, of being pregnant. Mary was convinced this was going to be a child. Elizabeth was released from house arrest and was called to the court to witness the birth, which was important to prove that it was true. Mary was obviously thinking, I have this child. Elizabeth will be less of a threat. This child will be my heir. But it turned out to be a phantom pregnancy or possibly the indications of some deeper internal problems. But... uh, Nothing came of it. The swelling went down. There was no child. Philip was away in Europe. Mary fell into one of her terrible depressions. Her physical health declined. Philip was starting to think that his hold on England might be a little bit shaky if this didn't go as planned. He realised that Mary, Queen of Scots, was a threat and might claim the throne. And she was a powerful threat because she was betrothed to the Dauphin of France. I'll deal with Mary, Queen of Scots separately in her own episode, as she was an important figure in Tudor history. But in a nutshell, she was descended from Henry VIII's sister Margaret, who had married the Scottish King James IV, which meant that after Elizabeth, Mary, Queen of Scots, was officially the next in line to the English throne. So Philip starts plotting and planning, trying to shore up what he saw as this new outpost of the Habsburg Empire. He tried to get Mary to agree that Elizabeth should marry his own cousin, the Duke of Savoy, to secure a Catholic succession uh, and to um, maintain the Habsburgs' interests in England. But it was Elizabeth herself who refused to agree to that. And it was very unlikely that Parliament would have agreed. Philip was already enormously unpopular. Moves like this would have would have been just too far. Reginald Pole, who we looked at before, was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury as soon as Cranmer's ashes had been swept up and chucked in the bin. And Mary's father-in-law, Charles V, abdicated, which made Philip officially now king of Spain, but he stayed in Europe while Mary stayed in England. Philip is thinking now that he's king, he'd better start a war, goes up against the French, tries to get the English involved, tries to bring Mary in on side, but the government is against it. 
there was this marriage act that said that the English were not obliged to support Philip in any of these wars. They didn't want a war. As I said, there'd been these famines, these terrible harvests in England. There'd also been something of a collapse of the wool and cloth trade with Antwerp. And this is in such contrast to Spain, which is enormously wealthy because of the trade with South America. But because of Mary's Spanish ties, she refuses to allow the now reasonably strong English navy to attack the Spanish, to seize these ships or to go into the American ports and and sack them. So this doesn't happen in Mary's reign, but obviously it becomes a huge thing in Elizabeth's reign. So there is not a lot of money in England to be supporting Philip's war. But a small army is sent over. There's one initial victory. But really the outcome of this stupid war is that the French take Calais, which was England's last remaining possession in France. The last bit of this old empire, I suppose you could call it, that started with the Normans, went on through the Angevins, dwindled and dwindled until only Calais was left, and now that has gone too. There was a famous, no doubt, apocryphal story. The Mary said, when I die, if you open me up, you'll find Calais engraved on my heart. Although, funnily enough, when she died, they did open her up, and Calais was engraved on her heart. Uh, It was probably the cause of her death. (laughs) No. But this makes Philip obviously even more unpopular in England. And on the back of this instability, there's another uprising against Mary. This one is led by Reginald Pole's nephew, Thomas Stafford, who invades England in an attempt to depose Mary. But this is put down like all the other attempts. One of the things that would have helped Mary would have increased her popularity, would have secured her position would have been if she did have a child. And after Philip returns briefly to England and then buggers off again, she announces she's pregnant. Yes, she tells everyone she really is this time. But she's not. She swells up. She's dying. There's an outbreak of flu in London at this time, which does away with a lot of people. and, And she seems to have contracted it. And that helped weaken her. And she went into a decline and she died in May of 1558 in terrible pain. We've seen over and over again that trying to establish an exact cause of death from this distance uh, is very difficult. And that, you know, medical practices and ideas of, of what killed people have changed a lot over the years. But it looked like Um, She may have had ovarian cysts, possibly cancer of the uterus. But she was only 42 when she died. There was no confusion over the succession. She didn't try anything clever. It was simply expected that Elizabeth would take the throne. Philip II immediately tried to propose to Elizabeth and say he should marry her instead. Um, Elizabeth sent him packing. She was as tough and stubborn and single-minded as her half-sister Mary and her father Henry, and indeed her mother Anne Boleyn. And we will look at Elizabeth in the next episode. But just briefly now, as a final sort of recap of Mary's reign, 
I said at the beginning she's remembered as Bloody Mary and she certainly did execute a lot of people. She tried desperately to reverse the Reformation and she's seen as being this sort of, um, you know, what a terrible waste because it wasn't successful. She just killed a lot of people for no reason at all. But had she not died, had she not had these health problems, things may have been very different. And we may have looked back and said, well, what a waste with Henry VIII and Edward VI killing all these people for no reason. We've been Catholic ever since. But she didn't have a chance to push things through. And if you compare the first five years of her reign to the first five years of Elizabeth's reign, it was no more or less successful. Elizabeth had the advantage of living longer and being able to really put her policies into practice. And after the break, I'll be discussing all of this with my special guest, Alexander Sampson. So make sure you come back for that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So welcome back to Queen Mary I. And I'm delighted to say that my guest on this episode is Alexander Sampson, who is a professor of early modern studies at University College London, specialising in the early colonial history of the Americas. And in 2020, uh, Alexander, you published Mary and Philip, The Marriage of Tudor England and Habsburg Spain. So welcome to the show, Alex, thank you very much. And yeah, we had um, there were a lot, there was a lot of wrangling with my publisher about the title um, because <laughs> um, you know I wanted to have it Mary the First and Philip the Second to give them their kind of official yes kind of Roman numeral. Um, but the publisher felt that was far too busy on the kind of on the uh, on <laughs> on the front cover of the book. So it's just Mary and Philip, <laughs> and I deliberately chose to. I mean, you know, because obviously speaking. In fact, their royal style, Philip precedes Mary. So, in fact, it's Philip and Mary. Well, we can't have that. In that order on all the legal legal documents and so on and from the reign. Oh, yeah. um, but I wanted to put Mary front and centre because, you know, that's partly what the book is about. It's trying to recuperate her, her mm. reputation as a great Catholic Queen of England. Is there a Spanish translation where it's Philip and Mary? Yeah, <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. But I'm hoping that someone will come and option what will be a wildly popular and successful <laughs> book in Spain. I was sort of really stimulated to write the book, actually, by many years ago. I went to Spain. I was talking at a conference in Almagro, and there's a great scholar down there called Felipe Pedraza Jiménez. And he was introducing me at this conference as you know, when I was about to give a paper. And he said, this is Alexander Sampson, who works on that saintly and wise queen, Mary the First. 
And I was like, wow, <laughs> saintly and wise. This is a different sobriquet to the kind of usual one, which calls her a bloody, of course, Bloody Mary. Or, you know, the John Fox epithet, the tragic and, and horrible time of Mary I. So it was interesting to see that from a Spanish perspective, from, you know, the perspective of Catholic Europe, mm. Mary's reign looks very, very different from the way that it looks from, from you know, England and Britain and the UK. Is there much sort of public knowledge of Mary? Is your figure that the Spanish know people, ordinary people know much about? It's a hard question to answer, but on some level... She's almost a better known figure in Spain than she is in in Britain, curiously mm. enough, in the sense that Madrid has a tube station, Maria Tudor, uh, Mary Tudor <laughs> tube station, whereas there is no public monument to Mary in Britain at all. So I think probably because we do do Tudors and, you know, I guess quite a few people will have heard of Bloody Mary, maybe. Yeah. For that reason, yes, she's she's kind of maybe well known in this country, but but yeah, in, as a sort of publicly celebrated figure who has a kind of monumental presence, she is more acclaimed in Spain than she is in in Britain. I mean, sure. I, I do get the feeling that there's quite a strong movement to rehabilitate her and to set the Bloody Mary idea aside and to say that she's been misunderstood and misrepresented in this country. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think that scholarship goes back quite a long way um, to the 1980s. I think there were this work of revisionism uh, began in, in many ways at that point. But really, I would say it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that scholars have really begun to reassess Mary's reign. So it is a re actually a relatively recent phenomenon. Part of the reason for that is this perception of Mary as a sort of as a half foreign figure, mm. that she is seen as associated with this the Spanish marriage. And the Spanish marriage is seen as a disaster. And Mary is a deeply unhappy and tragic figure. And so I think this kind of very negative framing of Mary and her reign, that has been changing because, of course, mm. that was a product of 19th century Anglican historiography, mm. which really very much departs from John Fox's Book of, Book of Martyrs, which essentially is a foundational text in, in terms of church, Anglican church history. There was a copy of it placed in every parish in England at one point. And so it's one of the most widely read narratives of the Reformation. And we tend to see, of course, the Reformation as, as a movement of national liberation. That's the way it's been framed in the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm. I think that's the question that really goes to the heart of the Marian period, is that it doesn't fit with our traditional historiography of, of the, you know, the rise of Protestant England, which effectively passes from Henry VIII through to Elizabeth I and then on into this glorious future and conveniently skips over the bit in the middle, which is the five-year reign of Mary with Catholic restoration mm. and the fact that Philip II was king of England for four years of that period. You know, not many people remember that we had a Spanish king in the middle of the Tudor period and in the middle of the 16th century. How much was he king? How much ruling did he do? What influence did <laughs> yeah. he have? It's a great question. And I think in terms of how much ruling he actually did, my argument would be that he was fully king of England. He had uh, regal power what he didn't have in England was a large patrimony to call on. So he didn't have lots of wealth and resources in the same way that he did in Spain. So it was more difficult for him to reward people by giving them particular bits of territory or rulerships or whatever it might be. So in that sense, he was, I suppose, excluded to some extent from 
being fully a member of the political community in England. But you have to remember that Philip II ruled over a global empire. Mm. He ruled over lands from the Philippines all the way to the Americas, from Acapulco in Mexico to Manila, and large swathes of Europe. And England was a key strategic state in that patchwork or mosaic of of lands that he ruled over. And I think the other mistake is perhaps to to think that king in each place or the prince in each place has the same kind of authority. Some kingdoms were elective, other jurisdictions had come to him via inheritance, other bits of his empire had come to him via conquest. And in each of these different cases, you have a slightly different political relationship with the people that you're ruling over. So England was simply another one of the many, many realms that Philip II ruled over. And yes, he was heavily involved in government. He was sent weekly updates on government business, and he annotated fully those Latin documents and sent back his replies as to the particular policy options that were being pursued. He wrote to Mary himself demanding that she implement particular policies. What's nice is that sometimes she refused. Uh, and said, no, I'm not going to do that because that's actually illegal according to the English constitution. So she was not either cowed by him. So he wasn't a sort of completely absolute monarch in terms of of England. It was a co-monarchy. It was a joint rule between the king and queen. How much time did he actually spend in England? How, How long was he with Mary? I mean, it seems to be looking at it that he popped over twice. They had sex. She thought she was pregnant and he went away again. (laughs) Um, yeah admittedly he did he did travel a bit but he was essentially in england from july 1554 all the way through till september 1555 so you you know 15 months 14 15 months the first on the first occasion and then he came back for six or seven months uh in 1557 and of course the reason he left in 1555 was because his father charles v was resigning Mm as King of Spain, ruler of the Netherlands, and passing on the crown. So it's very unusual to have an abdication of a monarch within their own lifetime. But Philip went to be sworn in as effectively the King of Spain and the head of the Habsburg dynasty in 1556 in Brussels. So he wasn't far away. He was just over the channel. And there were constant messengers traveling to and fro um, this whole period. And it's also worth remembering that he brought a lot of significant people with him when he came to London. So London, London suddenly became a very exciting cosmopolitan place where you have this incredible kind of group of power players in terms of early modern European politics, all staying in London, hunting, jousting, uh, being entertained and so on. So yes, admittedly, he was absent in those four years, but he was certainly half of the time he was in England and half the time he was he was elsewhere. Roughly. Why was Mary so keen to marry him? And should she have married Courtney? <laughs> well, in answer to the latter question, definitely not. Would have been a terrible idea. Right. Um, for, for lots and lots of different reasons. Because I think the issue with Courtney would have been what kind of authority would he have had within the English nobility? Um, and there would have been factional struggles around groupings around him and around Mary. In the case of Philip, to answer your question, why did she marry him? Well, it was by far and away the most prestigious and advantageous mm. marriage that was available to her. It repeated effectively her parents' marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, kind of reversing the genders, but the heir to the throne in Spain, 
marrying the queen, you know, the ruling queen of England. Spain in this period rules over an extraordinarily powerful. It was the world superpower, um, along with the Ottomans and the Chinese, maybe in this period, the kind of three big powers on earth. And it made a lot of sense because England's principal trading partner was the Low Countries. And of course, the Low Countries was ruled over by the Spanish Habsburgs in this period. Where do you stand on the Bloody Mary thing? How bloody was she? <laughs> I mean, she, was she? She she started out trying to be as, as nice as possible and then ended up being branded. I mean, it wasn't helped, was it, by the fact that all the portraits of her make her look very grim-faced. You think, oh, yeah, there's Bloody Mary. I think you're right. I mean, I think the, the existence of a uh, of a really good portrait it you know does a lot for a monarch. So I think you know the Holbein portrait of Henry VIII, mm. which makes him look literally like a colossus <laughs> bestriding in the world. You know, and he's become an icon of sort of British masculine, you know, thrusting masculinity. And I think similarly, you're right. That portrait of Mary that everybody knows, which is the Antonis More one. I think an art historian described her as looking at like a fanatical gargoyle. <laughs> now I'm not sure I go along with that aesthetic judgment about that. That portrait, but that gaze that fixes you from that portrait, and he's a brilliant, brilliant artist. He's a brilliant portraitist, um, Antonis More. It's a look of huge power and so on. But I'm not sure I find her frightening or necessarily hideously ugly. Some people have said she had this penetrating gaze that she stared at everyone because she was very short sighted. <laughs> I must try to see. Uh, who yeah, they that's were. true. Yes, that is indeed true. Yeah, it could well be the case. Yes, yes. He's actually looking yeah. kind of vague and lost. In fact, um, you're very much on the sort of let's look at her in a fresh light. I think my position is this: it's a very complex question. There is no question that she burned at least 283 people. You know, more than 300 Protestants um, died in her reign as a direct result of religious persecution. Now, nobody in the modern world condones that kind of action. Of course not. But at the same time, far, far more people died under both Henry and Elizabeth, uh, religious dissidents. So whether we're talking about Jesuit priests who were executed by, by Elizabeth, or whether we're talking about the putting down of the pilgrimage of grace by Henry VIII, you know, there were far more religious dissidents killed by those two monarchs than Mary. Now, people say, but yes, Mary was only in charge for a relatively short period of time. So if you extrapolated, mm. then maybe actually the persecution would been, have been on a similar scale. But again, I mean, you know, Eamon Duffy's written very interestingly about this, and his argument was that the persecution was working, <laughs> that you, you know, by executing some of the highest profile Protestants, the ones really associated with the religious establishment, people like Ridley, Latimer, you know, the arch, you know, Henry's mm. archbishop, um, Cranmer, you know, they had effectively cut the head off the beast in a way. And they had really frightened any serious kind of dissident intellectuals went into exile rather than remaining in Britain. And in fact, by the, the end of the persecution, it was people far lower down the social scale who were being had up and, and arrested and imprisoned mm. and, and burned. So whether one agrees with that argument or not, my point is that you need to see it in context. You know, the Reformation was a revolutionary and incredibly radical business, certainly under Edward. It became very, very much radicalized, I think, by, by Edward. And those changes were not welcomed by most people. So with Mary's accession to the throne, there was Catholic rejoicing. Mm. The majority of people in, in England were probably at that time still Catholic. 
And I think this is a, one of the other issues is that how do we define and how do we know, you know, whether someone's a Catholic or a Protestant? Yes. Um, you know, and at what point in time does that become obvious and clear? So how was Elizabeth, when she came to the throne, able to restock the bishops and the archbishops? I mean, many of the bishops had gone into exile on the continent. So they spent five years. And, and, you know, of course, the places where they went into exile were the centres of Protestant theology, both Protestant theology and also, importantly, Protestant um, print culture. So another thing that we're beginning to see in this period is is polemic religious polemic and people using the court of public opinion to try and win arguments about complex theological questions. So if under Henry VIII, there's a real debate about who should have access, who should be allowed to be engaged and involved in these conversations, Mm. Edward's reign had very much democratized religion and had wanted to push it out to the masses. And of course, you have the bishop's book. So you have the first translations of the Bible being put in every parish in England under Edward. Now, you would think that when Mary comes to the throne, that she would immediately legislate to have those English Bibles removed. Mm. But at no stage did she actually do that. Whether that's a recognition that that ship has sailed, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, it's too late to try and put it back in, or simply that she actually wanted or did not object too strongly, at least, to people reading the Bible in English, she thought that that, from an evangelical perspective, would be would have been a, a good thing, and that's one of the big questions: Do we see Mary effectively as a Christian humanist, you know, a kind of Erasmian, perhaps somebody who believed in the reform of the church, who believed in the renovation of preaching, who did criticise the the corruption and excesses of the clergy, and wanted them to be resident in their dioceses and so on. So a more of a kind of Catholic Reformation rather than the Protestant Reformation or revolution, one might describe it as, under Edward, that actually took place. And the problem is once you start making changes to things, then obviously it's very hard to defend a, an idea of tradition and stability and the age old in, in, in particular things to say this is an age old religious position. Mm. It's not that this is something newfangled and, and kind of, um, invented. So did the Protestants essentially control the media then? The Protestants were enormously affected. I and mean, there's a big, again, there's another really interesting debate about Mary's reign, about whether the Protestants or the Catholics win the propaganda war. <laughs> so one of the things that the, I think the Marian government make, a, make a, a conscious effort not to do is not to engage in polemic. All of these situations, there's, there's such a kind of strong analogy to many of the things that we were experiencing today. Mm. You know, you fuel the fire by engaging with that kind of polemic. So I think the Catholic side self-consciously didn't sort of engage in highly polemical works. They tended to do educational things, homilies, preaching, uh, more considered works of theology, perhaps, rather than kind of smaller pamphlet Mm. polemic. It's about even Stevens actually across the reign in terms of the number of Catholic versus the number of, of Protestant titles that are printed in English. It's impossible to say, but I'm going to get you to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> if, Love it. Love if these Mary <laughs> had ruled for as long as Elizabeth, say, yeah, do you think Catholicism would have stuck? Would we have stayed a Catholic country? Or was the rise of Protestantism too well established elsewhere? It's a great question. I mean, I think that is a really difficult question to answer. I mean, my feeling is that, yes, um, we would still be a Catholic country. But I guess my, que- my, my answer would be that 
it would have been a very different kind of Catholicism that would have emerged. Um, it would have been a, a Catholicism that was much more influenced by Erasmus, much more influenced by perhaps kind of humanist humanist thought and humanist thinking. Hmm. It would have looked very different from the kind of Catholic reaction that, that happened. I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about Mary's reign is that it's straddled by the Council of Trent. So, you know, the big church council convened by the Pope to kind of decide the church's reaction, the Catholic church's reaction to Protestantism and Luther and so on. Its earliest sessions are slightly before the reign and the thing and it, it kind of concludes mm. slightly after the reign in 1563. So nobody really knows what Catholic theology is, if you see what I mean, during right. the Marian period. Nobody knows where it's going to land. There's some wonderful examples of parts of in Germany which are next to Protestant communities where the Catholic priests um, took concubines and had families and lived with children because they saw that Protestant priests married. Um, and of course, that was only reaffirmed finally in the one of the some of the clerical celibacy was reaffirmed only finally by Trent in 1563, I think, mm. one of the very last sessions of all. And, you know, while people were waiting for that to happen, many had taken it into their own hands to say, well, hopefully they're going to allow priests to marry. We think this would be a good thing. Mm. So this is one of the difficulties is that, you know, what Catholicism and Protestantism are is kind of emergent in this period and they're reacting to each other. So what I would say is if Mary had lived a long time, undoubtedly uh, Britain would have remained Catholic. Scotland as well. I mean, I mean, Scotland seemed to independently go towards Protestantism. It did later on, but then Mary, Queen of Scots, I mean, it's only really after the exile of Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, much later in Elizabeth's reign that that happens. Scotland remains a Catholic country in theory, uh, right the way up until, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots' mm. exile in, in England. So if England had remained Catholic? Scotland would almost certainly have remained Catholic, absolutely. Okay. I guess the question is, would a dissident Protestant minority have survived um, in England and Scotland, perhaps? you know, if the political and religious establishment had been so solidly Catholic. Mm. That's really the question. And that's a hard one to answer. You could look at the low countries where, despite persecution, you know, the the rebel states survived and Protestantism, you know, survived in the low countries. God, I mean, there's so much to talk about in these things. Trying to cram them into one episode is so tricky. Yeah, thanks for your great questions. I mean, it's been a great <laughs> opportunity, actually, to say lots of stuff that I, I like saying and want oh, good, to say. So. good. So thank you. Um, it's been a great well, You've pleasure. been a, a great guest. That was Alexander Sampson, Professor of Early Modern Studies at University College London. And if you want to find out much, much more about this, then read his book, Mary and Philip, The Marriage of Tudor England and Habsburg Spain. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. So there we are. We've bid farewell to Mary. We've not bid farewell to Philip. He comes back in a big way over our next couple of episodes. Yes, I'm going to split Elizabeth into two because there is just so much to talk about in Elizabeth's reign. It was a very long reign. A lot happened. So I'm going to do one episode on her early life until she comes to the throne and then the second episode on her reign where, as I say, Philip returns in a big way as the Philip of Spain who sends the Armada against plucky little England. So make sure you come back to listen to those two. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. 
Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.